0: Hi, everyone. It's your Compact Nation podcast co-host, J.R. Jameson. Thank you for continuing to listen to this episode from the fifth global service learning conference. If you stick around until the end, you'll hear my one-on-one interview with the panel facilitator, Eric Hartman. Enjoy.
1: We're here under a banner that says Global Service Learning, but I know so many people uh, in this gathering are interested in a set of practices and I'll speak for myself. I've become, well, I don't use the language of global service learning anymore. Um, I'm into community-based global learning, um, ethical engagement, um, because I don't enjoy, or I don't, um, I don't want to be part of an assumption that suggests that when any set of us leave campus, there's an act of service that has, you know, uh, a possibility of incurring. I mean, there's such a hierarchical um, assumption built into that. Um, And at the same time, I recognize across all of your work and so much of the hallway conversations I've I've heard about, really interesting spaces of social change work. Sometimes there might be some contribution that is off campus. So often what we're talking about is how do you create space where people come together across Categories that have been differentiated very systematically, and do cooperative work that is aspirational and bringing us together in some way, which is both about student learning and, and sometimes community. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, if where you are with language is really. I don't want to get sort of sidetracked in an academic question. There's such strong implications in terms of strategy and what we're trying to do. What is it that we're trying to do in, in your minds?
2: So in my mind, I am trying to create young people who understand what does it mean to, and I, I, I'm going to use this word broadly, but being a change agent. But being a change agent with purpose and understanding all that comes with that. Because if you can, we can go through all the steps of teaching young people how to go into a community. Um, but I think that there are some just basic fundamentals. You know, how do you work with individuals? You know, how do you create this um, mindset where individuals understand how to, to, to reason, listen, um, disagree, uh, agree to disagree, so I'm gonna say this, and I know it, it, it's counter to what we're, you know, the, the title, but this is what I tell my students. If you can't look in your own backyard and see issues that are happening, you to why going would out. I send exactly. you all the way across the globe to go and work in someone else's yes. community? Yes, I agree, I <laughs> agree. And I think that this is, this is a critical problem of global service learning. If we wanna be critical, that is my critique, that we want to send students abroad, but they haven't looked in their own backyard. So I'm in Penn State, and you know we can easily, first thing people wanna say, well let's go to Philadelphia, let's go to Pittsburgh, let's go to Belfont. Let's go right down the road where we have 80% of the students or individuals within a school dealing with the opioid epidemic. Yeah. If you can't help your students to understand how to address and unpack these issues, and help, and I, I, help is such a, a trivial word, but, Begin to address these wicked issues that are happening within communities in their own backyard, and I say backyard, but it could be, you know, somewhere in the U.S. Um, I think we're 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 doing students a disservice. I think we have to help them see that the maybe the, the, the chain of events or um, the lens from which they ap- approach their work, the theoretical foundation from which they're approaching their work, that those are those are um, things that they can use right here in the United States. Then we can talk about that next step of being a global citizen. Because if you can't talk to your neighbor, and I've had students to tell me in my classes, I wanna go help the brown people. And I said, well, what brown people? Because I'm brown, are you trying to help me? Like. I, you you know, so it's, 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 I don't need help. No, <laughs> but it, it's helping students to understand you saying that comes with a whole lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, there's a lot here. We, we make light of it, um, but this is a fundamental issue that I think that we do need to address.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would really like to jump in there because I think that,
2: as. <laughs> this is supposed to be the view. So, let's...
3: <laughs> so. So so one of the issues I find myself struggling with currently is the fact that Cape Town does attract a lot of international students, not only from the US, you know, but from Europe too. And and I, I love teaching, I love students, I love curiosity. But I want to use the word that Ron, and I forget his surname from the University of Washington, talked about labor. I want to use this word labor. The labor it takes to actually do this kind of work, very often from the part of the community, very often from students of color into whose neighborhoods we actually, students often go to do that service. And I think that, that the notion of labor, it's uncosted, it's very often invisible, it's emotional labor, it's psychological labor. Very often in my context, it's sharing your stories of apartheid. Now why would anyone want to share stories of trauma? To somebody who comes into their neighbourhood, so it's those subtleties that curiosity, but that involves labour, and I don't think we think about labour enough in this work. And it's it's multiple and it's intersecting and it's invisible, and it brings me maybe to to just the final point on this is the notion of verbs. And I know people who know me know I've used this language before, but what are the verbs we use in this work, whether it's global service learning, local service mm-hmm. learning, what are the things that students say when they're doing this work? Is it help? Is it understand? Is it witness? Is it a company? Um, and I think just the languaging of this work is important. I don't want to get lost in language, but I think in language is power, and language also indicates directionality. And as somebody who lives in the Global South, who was born there, doesn't represent the issues in the Global South at all. I'm not claiming that, but I'm. I am I, in a space that's inviting a lot of overseas students in, and so I have a particular perspective on that, and I really appreciate, Nicole, what you're saying about there's so much going on in this country that needs deep, deep scrutiny, and we've, we experienced it in South Africa with your current president. You know, it shifts stuff, and I think just some deep scrutiny locally, I think would be a really good first step in bringing students to Cape Town. So they come with a local example of some of the issues they want to explore globally.
1: I think, um we absolutely agree uh, with the desire, the hope that we... Well, so let me back up. The move to call this global rather than international was meant to signal exactly what you're suggesting, indicating. It is, in some sense, uh, it's absurd to really focus only on the far away. Um, and there's a way in which exoticization and all sorts of narratives about... Um, Deserving and undeserving uh, people, and uh, intersect with racism, and and cause that gaze. You know, to go back to some of your own work, <laughs> outward. Um, the global, it, for me, does something to signal to students everywhere that we're part of an interdependent human community and, and shared ecology. I just wanted to put that out there. In the work, for example, contemporary work with migrant uh, and migrant-serving communities. <laughs> Uh, Now, civic education has association with the state, as I understand it. Um, And there's questions about social responsibility and participatory work in civic dialogue. Um, Global gives us attention to an aspiration of working together in a way that's potentially resistant to the state when it's resistant to human community. This is sort of going into the global citizen language. I just kind of, I wanted to.
4: So can I push back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. please. uh, On on that, and just back to this idea of intentionality and um, this space. I mean, I, I, I don't mind the the word global, but I think that we also have to practice it, right? So even if we're reflecting on this, everything's been in English. Where's do we do we have people who need translation? Do, or do we have people who have been volunteering to translate, right? So because I'm also um, on the board of slice and we're supposed to be an international organization, but we. Succumb to the very U.S.-centered practice in even the way we we do things. So, if we are claiming global, then the first, you know, one of the first questions on the application or the registrations, would you like translation? Do you should the app, uh, the registration, be in multiple languages? Right. So, I think that we also have to figure out ways to not just say we're it, but embody it, and that's in the intentionality of thinking about these things around uh, translation, around who we have at the table, like people presenting in the, their first language, right? Um, having a journal that can also have um, uh, pieces that are not just in in English, and you know, The reasoning why, sort of going back to, I I do this work, I think, are are two things. One is to make sure that, like, the US is not the center of the universe, and that folks know that, right? And that, so both the internal colonies that we have inside the United States and those voices being present in how we do this work, but also the uh, idea of the global south and, you know, that we are not the only place where knowledge comes from. And that we have to make sure that we are intentional in making, in ensuring that the opportunities are there for that learning from other places to take place. And I'm in the business of helping to build human beings, right? And so that means relationships, that means um, empathy, that means consciousness, that means critical views, and that means self-reflection. And so in the, I think in this work, like all of those pieces need to be part of how we envision um, and develop our programming, um, and our relationships with, with one another and across the, the globe as we're trying to build that, because we have a lot of individualism. Um, we don't have enough collectivity. Mm-hmm. This is my
1: I'm, ju- I'm Interested in, uh, I think there are two further comments on this exact thing. Um, which I want to hear both of them, and the um, wanted to sort of get the audience thinking about uh, questions you may have, because uh, we'd love to hear a few questions from you. And just a reminder, as you, as you think about that, um, if you could please share where you're from, organizationally or and also the, the geography as well when you do that. Um,
2: I just wanted to echo off of uh, echo that comment and say that when we talk about preparing, um, that preparation also means that we need to think about deconstructing the approach of how we teach about these different locations that we're going into. So for example, one of the things I'm very intentional about is bringing in literature and readings from individuals from that particular place. So. In the introduction it was mentioned that part of my, the other hat that I wear is I'm the center director for the 2IE uh, Penn State collaboration in Burkina Faso. So my role really is to facilitate this notion of engagement and research with faculty and students. Um, so part of that is helping faculty to understand that when we talk about these spaces, within West Africa and the West African context, we cannot look to just the white theologians, um, theologians because we're here, but white theologists um, who have shaped maybe the U.S. landscape. We need to look at other um, West African or African or Pan-African um, mm-hmm. or even our uh, individuals from Latin America and other places who have helped shape this dialogue around engagement, around um, reciprocity, around collectivism. And when you start begin to open people's eyes, it's like, wow, I didn't realize that other folks are writing about this. Mm-hmm. They are writing about it. Mm-hmm. Now, it goes back to your point. It may not be in English, mm-hmm. and, that's, that, and we can work around that, but don't tell me, that folks aren't writing about this and the only people who are writing are Americans. Because I will tell you that is not true and I will point you to where you need to go. So I think as a, as a movement or as a, a field, we need to make sure that we are definitely um, creating those spaces where we can have our other, Colleagues from other places um, to begin to insert their work um, to show the value um, to our students and our colleagues. So I just want to say that.
5: For me, the ul- ultimate goal of uh, global engagement is to produce um, uh, sane, sustainable, human scaled. Places Mm -hmm. and for students to be agents of that project from a broader horizon than their own uh, racial, ethnic, class, uh, religious, ideological, and national group. So the international is an important piece of forming a, a certain student consciousness that then commit to apply uh, their, their knowledge and skills uh, through good work in building healthy communities, whether you like the language of capabilities or flourishing or livelihoods or even the uh, um, development, the sustainable development goals. To me, it comes down to the personal and the local. To me, virtually every global problem is rooted in mm-hmm. personal habits and frames of mind. You change the way a person thinks about themselves and, and others within the human and natural communities and bring it down to concrete levels of their their consumption patterns and, and uh, treatment of Everything from from uh, the family members to to the uh, to the animals that they might uh, have for supper. Uh, to me, all of that matters, and it's all best um, realized within local settings because without healthy places, you'll ne- uh, millions of healthy places. You don't have a healthy planet, and without sustainable souls, you don't have sustainable societies at a local level. So I think the global citizenship is good if it gives the wider view. But if it's always associated with the international, and if it distracts students from the personal and the local, I think there's a problem.
1: And I think, uh, sounds like there may be some other comments, but I did want to invite folks, if you have a comment or a question, something you want to share, please uh, go ahead and stand up so we know uh, to look your direction and we can can draw some of this in.
4: They have to go to the mic too.
1: Uh, Yeah, please appear at the microphones uh, that are placed both upstairs and uh, downstairs here. And a few folks are coming forward, thank you. Maybe here on the ground floor you could share. Hi. Uh,
6: <coughs> my name is David Eliana. Um I grew up on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro. And uh, for the last seven years, I've lived in these plains of Indiana.
4: <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a priest of the Congregation of Holy Cross. And for the last three and a half years, I've been doing a PhD, um, seeking for a PhD um, in theology, world religions. And I'm privileged to have Father Paul Coleman as my advisor on that. <laughs> Um, I've been a uh, maybe a collaborator or partner with a center for social concern as a priest of Holy Cross working in Tanzania. And, um, we've had students coming to our centers there to do their summer service learning program. And that has been a uh, blessing and, and a wonderful experience for us and for them. Uh, and, um, it's, it's really wonderful to be here, um, for this, uh, uh global SL summit. And, um, uh, I've been listening to, uh, lots of conversation and, uh, Lots of questions are coming in, in, in my mind. And yes, listening to this uh, uh, forum here has been really you know, kind of mind opening. And uh, I'm, I really like the idea of, be, of being um, uh, critical on our own and trying to figure out whether, uh, sorry, what we are doing, I have, I have a back problem. So it's, <laughs> yeah. So what we are doing is, um, is important for us. Can I sit with the microphone yes, and ask? Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, great. Yeah, so there was one question that I was asking myself here. Um, There's a university called St. Augustine University. It's a Catholic university. It's in Mwanza, Tanzania. And I was just wondering if St. Augustine had the opportunity to convene the, the global SL6 maybe next year or in the next two years, and maybe 70% of the participants will be Tanzanians. Do you think they will be able to talk about themselves as global citizens the way we are talking about here? And I think that's, a, to me, that's a critical question that we, we need to ask ourselves, because, um, Maybe just to give you a small example. This morning I was speaking to my brother Joseph, who is a who is a partner with PwC in Tanzania. He's a tax partner, and he uh, he told me for the next two or three days I'll be very busy because we have our global leaders here. And he said, when I mean when I say global leaders, I mean Americans. Mm, yeah. So that was a you know it's a it's I don't know whether it's a red flag or it's a it's a green flag. And I told him, yeah, we also have a global service learning summit here in the United. States, and he said, yeah, it's in the United States. So, you know, you listen to all these things, and you, you know, it, it keeps making you wonder, okay, when we are talking about this global service learning, we are talking about forming global citizens. Are we talking about forming American students to be global citizens, or we are talking about the rest of the world to be global citizens. Mm-hmm. If we will be sitting someplace else in the world with a population someplace there and asking them about their global citizenship, would they give the same kind of experiences and knowledge like we are trying to do here? And I think when we are looking at ourselves critically, maybe that's the question that we may need to ask ourselves. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's
3: I mean, I'm, I would just like to acknowledge that question, that comment, because I think it's one that, that I've grappled with for a very long time, and I actually think that your critique is, is absolutely spot on. I'm just really mindful when I'm in the US and I, of all the opportunities that students get to explore the world, to understand, my students do not move. So what does global mean to somebody who doesn't actually move? So global is not just about mobilities. It's a component of global. But global is about world views, going back to Marisol's point. And, you know, those things, travel does a huge amount to to support that and to nurture it. So I just want to acknowledge exactly what you're saying. And as a director of a global citizenship program, I'm under, I'm under huge pressure within myself to rethink what do I really mean by that. You know, and, and, and I think that... I don't think perhaps some of you realize quite the experiences your students get. They're in different parts of the world. They get to understand people and cultures and ways of being in the world that are hugely important in cultivating critical consciousness, and many other students don't. And there's a huge inequality, and I really do want to acknowledge it because it. And I've taken the position as well to step back from actually working with international students for a moment and working with my local students because exactly those kind of potentialities and my own experience that I want to offer local students because I think that's what we don't do enough of. And my last point is just going back to Haverford. I spent five, six days at Haverford and I think the Haverford president said something that I found really helpful in terms of global citizenship. And his thing was it's a demand, it's a potentiality. And I think the thing it's a demand is a really important thing to think Think about. So what's it demanding of us to think about things together? So I think that's how I've reconciled my quite deep critique, actually, of a lot of the global service learning work from my context. But because I'm passionate about student learning and about education, I'm able to reconcile that. But I just want to thank you very much for, for pointing out that almost like an elephant in the room. Yeah. Thank you.
4: And And I would just have to say that's where you know the history of colonialism co- continues to exist in in this, right? When uh, because we experience it in Puerto Rico too, or anything from the U.S. is is, is better, and that the, you know that's the internalized piece of it that we also have to shift um, as well. Um, I think we have to be critical about the way we continue to perpetuate that.
1: I, I know someone else is about uh, to ask a question, um, and I did want to mention that's a, a vision. I mean, it's a critique, and it's a vision of possibility as well. Um, actually, Janice and I have been talking together about what it would look like. Um, to do something like this in South Africa, and um, if it's a vision that's you know really possible, I, speaking for myself as a part of this community, I'd love to think about it. I know when we last spoke, um, I, I, I've, I've been pressed to think in new ways from a lot of the South African discourse, not just by Janice but by several others doing the community engagement work there. And there's a great deal we can we can learn uh, from multiple places. Speaking of which, uh, Shawnee. My yes. thank you so much and thank you to the organizers for this wonderful
7: um, uh, conference um, uh, and thank you to the uh, you know the first question because much of what I wanted to say is actually said uh, I'm grateful for that um, but uh, my question goes to you um, uh, professor Janice um, I'm glad that there's that kind of at least global on that stage because I mean you are represented and uh, I'm very glad for that. Also talk of critique um, and especially also that same question. What can we do from the other side of the table you know, from the global south. Because it's also true that the Americans will not go and bring 1,000 Ghanaian students every time they send 1,000 Ghanaian students. Uh, What do I want to say? Americans will not fund bringing 100 Ghanaian students every time they send 100 Ghanaian students to Ghana. Um, Likewise to South Africa. So what can we do from that end Um, to kind of, you know, level the field a little bit, you know, because it's like we always say that we want somebody to do something for us. Can we do it ourselves? Thank you.
1: Uh, that... I want to offer an example I'm aware of um, to agree with the critique and to suggest that there are ways we can do this better. You know, it's, it's a question of prioritizing and resourcing. Um, so an organization I've been involved with, but this all of this awesome stuff happened after I was there. So um, just, just to share it as an example, um, Amazaji has made it a commitment within its, its strategic plan that it will be doing bi-directional exchange with organizations uh, that it works with around the world. So that's involved a lot of creative work, like State Department, Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs leadership kind of programs are out there. Um, But the result of these sort of experiences in, for example, washington d c where Ghanaians and Peruvians and Northern Irish are cooperating together on questions about food insecurity in the United States, opens up a new space of dialogue and possibility and flips the script in a way that is highly productive i mean just for everyone involved um, and and thus sort of uh, US folks d- chiefly as well. Um, that's a tiny, infinitesimal percentage of the overall work. I mean, the dominant form is, is the form we've described, and um, it's a question of funding commitments. Uh, also, here are uh, representatives from Northern Ireland who have seen a funding commitment to this kind of learning at a uh, government level and bringing students into uh, the United States to think about social change uh, through that process as well.
3: I mean, I would just like to respond to, to, to Shani directly in terms of the what we can do from the global south. And I think that global exchanges or mutual exchanges are really a nice thing, but they're a bit idealistic in the sense of our degree structures are very different, funding is very different, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it in other ways. And I'd just like maybe just briefly say three ways. Online dialogue and discussion. We've had experiences of working with the University of Toronto recently on a a global commons dialogue series. And yes, it's not about movement and travel, but it's using technology to get those those debates going. And I think that we can push back from and very strongly, I would like to build partnerships with institutions keen to do that. That links to um, maybe a second thing, which is how do we how do we train our student facilitators to think about themselves differently and work with students on campuses in different ways. And I'm just thinking of conversations I've had with, with Shannon Hartman amongst others about how do we create spaces for de, like deliberation and dialogue in our campuses in the global south to think about ourselves kind of um, very differently. And then, um, then Nicole's suggestion about resources. Where do we draw inspiration from? What texts do we use to teach this work? And can we actually source texts more from varied backgrounds, from Ghana, from you know, Tanzania, from South Africa? Could that be in your curriculum? Could our voices actually be present in your, in your curriculum in more ways?
2: Yeah. I would say the other. Um Two, two points that I would like to offer. I think one, sitting in the seat where um, I'm in the room making those decisions sometimes with governments about funding, um, one of the things that we have done have been <clears throat> quite successful is within working with our partners, um, when we apply for grants, so when we apply for federal grants or that do not have an international component, Um, we make sure that we we let our partners know, okay, this particular grant, we cannot write in for international students, but what can you do to match that? Mm -hmm. So we try to um, create some sort of system so that we have funding to support X amount of students. The second thing is um, building these alliances. So right now, Mm -hmm. we have an alliance um, between Penn State, um, Ecuador, Nicaragua, and Honduras. The Alliance allows us to build a global connection first of all online and then secondly because of government government support so they've seen this, seen this project um, in action they are willing now to support bring the, I think it's five to six students per year um, to travel to each of those locations. So it's not coming to Penn State. We were very purposeful in saying, we do not want them to come, okay, yes we want them to come to Penn State, but we don't want them to come to the U.S. first because they are global citizens. Just because they all speak Spanish doesn't mean they share the same cultural lens. So we're, we're building these kinds of experiences And I know it's a it's a difficult conversation to talk about money um, and especially funding. But if you are interested, we can have an online conversation, I think, because we've been quite successful. The other thing I would say for my African partners um, is Yali. If you don't know about that, the Nelson Mandela um, network, that brings over uh, X amount of students. If you are not a YALI fellow, or have not heard of the YALI program, please come and talk to me afterwards um, for a number of reasons. Um, so I, within Burkina and West Africa, we now have a YALI Alumni network. So we and I
1: forget the acronyms.
2: YALI is the Young African Leadership Initiative. It was started under the Obama administration, um, but it it has it just celebrated its I think 2,000th African that African student that was trained that has been trained. But there's a lot of different pockets of money. But it's I'm, I'm looking up because yeah. I'm trying to find Shawnee. I don't know where he is. On oh, um, pockets I of think. money. Oh, there. Sorry. <laughs> pockets of money. Um, but this will go to anyone in the room. It's finding those rela- building those relationships with your partners so that you can create and craft um, either grants or opportunities so that people can see the relevancy and how perhaps that experience will be able to benefit others within the country because everyone won't be able to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we can talk That's offline.
4: Cool. That's great.
1: Were there other, um, I saw another person standing a moment ago, but perhaps perhaps not. So it's interesting how we've gotten to some energy, I think, around uh, vision and potentiality that brings us together around some aspirations. I Kind of want to bring it back to what do universities have to do with what we were just talking about? Nothing. <laughs> no. <laughs> Universities and colleges, I should say, higher ed institutions.
3: I mean, I, I well, I mean I make I mean actually um Marisol something that you said about, you know, you in in the you creating kind of human beings you into that kind of development. And I, I, you know, I think that that's, that's really important, that the university's role in creating kind of caring, compassionate citizens is something that doesn't, doesn't easily happen through disciplines that are siloed from each other. It happens through a greater awareness on a university of its commitment to that kind of a role. And I recently came across the work of Sarah Carpenter, who's um, she was at the University of Toronto. I think she's now in Alberta. And she talked about community engaged learning in a very transformative, disruptive way. And her point was you know, academic knowledge is useful, but it's limited. You know, it's only one form of knowledge. And so, when we think of universities as knowledge producing entities, and if they have good knowledge but limited knowledge, then the role of the universities is to expose students to other kinds of knowledge and to commit to broadening the knowledge base of students. And that can happen through the practices we've been talking about today. But it's going to involve a lot of disruption because, you know, for disciplines and knowledge producing entities to step back from that leadership role requires rethinking, um, you know, knowledge epistemologies, a whole range. Of, of power relations. But I think, I think universities do have a role, but it's limited. It's only one of many roles. And you know it's an important one, but there are multiple other roles that need to be played in this work. If that's a useful answer, that's where I'll leave it.
5: I think uh, <clears throat> I agree. The, uh, the university concentrates intellectual capital with uh, high levels of expertise at the research level where um, uh, social technical innovations can come and at their best serve the public good. Mm, exactly. It's been done in many, many areas of, uh, particularly in, in medicine, uh, energy, et cetera. You know, at the undergrad level, it also concentrates a learning community, and it, it actually disciplines all of us, students and instructors alike, around uh, bodies of knowledge that we find the intersections between disciplines and we build up a set of uh, knowledge and skill competencies that I don't know can be done Even with the ubiquity of of information on the web, uh, I have yet to meet many students, just a couple, who have managed to do it in a self-directed, unsupervised, extended manner. They've needed the discipline of the learning community. That said, I think much that we have in terms of infrastructure is becoming increasingly obsolete. I think we could, you know, uh, reduce the tuition uh, requirements of students to a third of what we have here if we eliminated NCAA football teams and and uh, Are you in uh, the
4: wrong place to say that? Club club
5: Med cafeterias and huge auditoriums and multiple conference rooms and and residential housing, libraries. What do students do in libraries? At our library, they go drink a cup of Joe, you know, and work on a project. I you know, I go up to the periodical section, hardly it's a ghost there's never anyone in
1: in there. Check out. so, so the physical infrastructure of the university, uh, I'm going to put to the side for the second, but it does remind me of creation of spaces. I and mean, I think that's come up. If we're thinking about the way in which higher ed intersects with social change, um, one thing we haven't talked about up here, and I think in some ways it's because we're talking about social change as a, as a shared learning space. We haven't been using any of this sort of community outcomes yeah. um, um, language. We could talk about that if anybody's interested, but I've heard a lot of comments around how space is created for shared inquiry and how the process of um, decentering knowledge and creating collaborative space requires a lot of intentionality. I just wonder how you do that in your partnerships. Um, that's, that's really the question for the moment. I'm, maybe I'll add a comment as, as you're done.
2: Yeah. So,
3: I'm going to call to Karen.
2: I was gonna say, um, part of what I do with my students is I introduce the term co-creation of knowledge. A lot of the students walk into the classroom and they believe it's the end-all be-all. What you're giving me or what we're going to be learning with our community partner um, is us coming in with this lens. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what we do is we, uh, I try along with you know, individuals that I'm working with, to help them understand how do you co-create knowledge with your partners? with your community. So the community, first of all, you have to understand that a lot of these students don't think that the community holds knowledge. Now if you are, I think, aware and understand um, as a facilitator that that's a a conversation you have to bring in from day one, then you get it. But if if that's not happening, you have to bring that into the conversation to say, for example, Somebody was talking about, giving the example of agriculture. And I said, these people have been doing this for umpteen years. Why do you think that you come in because you have a PhD or uh, whatever, two years in university in an a 100-level ag class, and you're going to tell this farmer how to do something? I said, it's one thing to, to think that, but listen and think about how you can co-create knowledge. And co-creating knowledge then moves on to the next step of putting it in places where individuals who don't have the opportunity to sit in this, these luxurious, as he says, libraries, how can they access that information? So being able to work with the community to co-create, but then create spaces so that this is shared knowledge and information for everyone. Yeah. That's what I do.
4: And, you know, I really, for me, like I came up in this tradition in my community about this idea of community as intellectual space. So, you know, I feel, so my earlier comment about nothing is that the university cannot see itself as the be be all end all of of knowledge creation. And I I understand what faculty do and the research and, and, and this idea of being knowledge creators, but they are not the only ones that hold that title. And I think the more we talk about community as co-educators, community as intellectual space, the more that we see ourselves in terms of universities as part of a interconnected ecology, right, of knowledge hubs the more we can really serve the public good of of higher education. And I think the the other piece of of that is that um, in the work that we do, we know that students oftentimes get more from the community than they will ever, ever give. right? And that part of that exchange is that connection to humanity. So if we can You know, look at ourselves as spaces that help facilitate that, then I think we can fulfill our role. But it's hard to do that when universities were built on exclusion, Mm -hmm. right? We were built on histories of exclusion we still perpetuate those in terms of you know how, what's the percentage of accept what's the what's accept, acceptance rate percentage and what makes us a prestigious university and the differences and the silos we create between community colleges and our ones and all of these distinctions so I think we need to rethink and like if we want to be about this then we have to bring that criticality even to thinking about ourselves as universities mm-hmm. from the history of exclusion that
3: we have. I mean, just maybe one point just to add to, to that is, and it was again in working with Tim in Cape Town that I, that, I, that was prompted me to think about this. So what are our partnerships about? Are they simply about the times that students go in to do their engagement? Or are those partnerships partnerships that transcend that, that are fundamental partnerships to working, to co-collaborating? So, for instance, at Stanford, we committed to a community of practice, and we actually use that language way back, to saying to our partners, we're with you. At times, we'll have students coming to your projects if that's okay, and we'll negotiate that. But other times, we just want to be with you, and we invited them into our space and we had conversations with them. Those conversations then often led to them requesting from us additional knowledge around fundraising, around organizational learning. I think, very, very, my last point is just very currently a partnership i've had since my own phd more than 15 20 years ago in cape town i was contacted by Auntie Goethe, who heads up a civic organization to whom i have had students go asking me for fundraising around mothers day because it's an area where gangs had taken over a housing development project and they had no funding for a mothers day lunch they wanted to do with all the older folk in the community and do we have students who could help with that of course we did and so there we moved from a very a kind of a very formal partnership when students go there, to me, spending Mother's, you know, Mother's Day in a, a civic hall, you know, with that community. So I just want to think about what our partnerships are about, and the fact that they need to transcend the times and the spaces where students go in for their engagement. It's actually about much more about the humanity, and it's about connecting, you know, irrespective of those partnerships, and maybe beyond them. So that's just what I wanted to say.
5: Because we're at Notre Dame, we can. Uh perhaps structure that that question of social space in terms of Catholic social teaching. And so the question that I have is how will we practically operationalize um, student embodiment uh, at a community level that, that, that ties to subsidiarity, in relationships of solidarity, which means to me to care about the fate of human and other than human communities, all the while engaging systemic thinking in terms of structural evil, and to to imagine uh, a common good that's beyond the private benefit of uh, higher learning for upward mobility. Mm -hmm. To me, that social space has to be created, at least in the current sociology of higher education institutions, outside, in biblical language, outside the gate into the the community. in relationship, however, with the assets of the higher education institution <laughs> so that there is that two-way sharing of, of knowledge. And I think that has the greatest potential for higher education serving the public good.
1: We have another question and I just, were you waiting in the back or? Okay, okay, great, thanks.
8: Thank you everybody, uh, the panelists and everyone for being here. My name is Willie Oppenheim. I represent an organization called Omprakash, and I live in Seattle, Washington in the United States. And I want to just kind of uh, prod at this conversation about the role of universities, which I really appreciate. Uh, Of course, I agree with Rich's observation that universities have contributed and can contribute a lot to uh, positive social change, but I think... I'm assuming most of us or all of us will agree that universities in many cases also reproduce the status quo and we can see that in terms of who has access and uh, where they go from there and what traits are rewarded and so on. Um, So my question is when we think about this global service learning work or whatever other terms we might use for it, uh, how do we make sure that the way this work unfolds in universities is not uh, getting sort of co-opted into reproducing the status quo, and we've, all, you know, you've all addressed this in various ways. But I want to make it even more pointed, uh, because what I have observed in my, some of my work and and in conversation with many of the people here, is that we can have uh, very aspirational frameworks and ideals about uh, reciprocity and justice and dignity and and whatever it may be in terms of wh- how we think about designing programs. But then there's often the comment of oh but you know then there's the risk management piece or there's the the funding piece or there's the uh, just the bureaucracy or the accreditation and all of these things that at first glance can seem like sort of oh somewhat just you know things that we need to navigate but it's just it's it's not going to stop us um, and i often wonder you know 50 years in the future or whatever when one looks back at this movement or just this period in in higher ed, if the story might be that, oh yeah, uh, all these people thought that they were really uh, changing the status quo, and in fact, the sort of politics of university risk management, accreditation, funding, all these things actually quite successfully made sure that the status quo was never really disrupted. And so the question then becomes in a a practical way, how do you as practitioners and as thinkers suggest that uh, our colleagues who work in higher ed or with higher ed institutions, how do you actually challenge those constraints. And of course I understand, oh, yeah, we need to work within institutions and you, you, I get that. But there's a point at which uh, sometimes I wonder, I worry that we surrender too much. And so just to give the one example, Marisol, I thought that was very interesting. You said, you know, you wanted to lead this trip to Puerto Rico and the university says, okay, great, you know do it this way, and good for you for saying, no, I want to do it a different way so it's more affordable, but how often do people say, okay, I'll, I'll do it that way, and hey, at least we'll go, but now, meanwhile, it, it costs three times as much as it could.
1: Um, so, okay. We've would like to uh, I Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
5: To the extent that the core values of the global service learning movement, which would be an interesting exercise to try to, in some way, codify them, uh, to the extent that they run across purposes to the uh, socioeconomic and political purposes of higher education, I think then the the movement becomes a minority movement, an insurgent movement. It may uh, originate on the edge of inside institutions, but if it's successful in creating Informing creative, creatively maladjusted people, uh, both both the, the the faculty, staff, and the students, uh, they will either be tolerated within as, as a you know a a leavening influence towards the social justice goals of the institution if the mission allows for that, or if it crosses a the line, they'll be ousted. You know, uh, so at that point, is the goal to stay in the institution, or is the goal to embrace courageously and compassionately the core goals and to to live by them, uh, regardless of whether it's successful institutionally or not.
3: Um, I mean, I suppose. I mean, thanks for the question. I think. I think for me, it would be both. um, For me, it would be about. What are those kinds of boundary spaces, for lack of a better term, that we can utilize to do that? One form of that could be, you know, at a big level, global service learning. But are there ways in which the university can be more open to communities just in its? other kinds of practices, perhaps not as, as high-risk or as highly organized practices. Do we have you know, community members sitting in particular committees or in our university to help us think about stuff? Um, do we have them in our classrooms teaching our students? So I think, um, William, I'm not directly answering your question, but I think you know, global service learning and the way that we involve partners in that practice is one thing, but maybe it's about a bigger question about how the university opens itself to... Communities beyond itself in maybe small ways that together aggregated together might be a bigger movement towards that end goal. I'm not sure. Um, so I'm just thinking. I have community partners teaching in my courses, and that's one way in which I've tried to help students, you know, understand multiple sources of knowledge. But maybe they're big and small ways in which together can can be more of a force for transformation. I'm not sure.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you know, it it takes individuals to push the boundaries, right? In in anything. I Ethnic studies didn't come up because you know one day, university presidents were like, oh, this would be great to you know, have courses that speak to our students of color. No, it came through student protests and faculty who were willing to, to push the edges, just much like um, the service learning movement. So I think it, it comes down to, to individuals. But you know one of the things I'm excited about in terms of Campus Compact is that we're gonna be launching a credentialing program this fall with different micro credentials within that and some of it will speak to issues around risk management or you know it's not just for it's mainly for community engagement professionals but there will be opportunities for learning and it's competency based for other kinds of folks within higher ed so I think some of it is the training and background on the what can we do. Like sometimes we don't know what we can do until we ask the questions. And so I feel like this credentialing program that we have coming online will help in terms of broadening the knowledge base around this work, um, but also it's a good pathway to bring in community partners uh, to the academy to, to do this work, right? Even though I went to DePaul as a student, I didn't like stay there to, and just start working in the in, at the university. I went to the community and worked many years in the community before I entered higher ed and that experience you know the way I do work within uh, higher ed is from that community perspective and I think we need more of those voices teaching classes uh, running programs within higher ed asking those uh, boundary pushing questions to be able to say um, there's got to be a different way to figure this out
1: I want to um, recognize we're near the end of time, but do you have a...
2: I was, I was just going to say, I think something that has not been mentioned, I agree with everything, is telling the story. I think that sometimes we don't do that well. Um, I, I believe that we all sit in our silos, and I say silos, but we do. We sit and we're doing great work, but we're not getting the story out. And I think one of the things is we have to think like a business, um, marketing, marketing ourselves. So if you're really talking about uh, pushing the boundaries, being able to show what is the impact, what has been the impact of these particular um, experiences on students, on the community, on various stakeholders and being able to tell that story in such a way where someone can't tell you no or someone can't say I'm not willing to invest in that. So I think that that's something that we don't do well, and I think we need to capitalize on um, our storytelling abilities.
1: In just a moment, I'm gonna ask if you each have a single sentence you'd like to share in closing about hope that keeps you in this community. Um, so I've changed the challenge to a single sentence. Um, you're all incredibly bright, as we know. Um, I also wanted to recognize again Tim Stanton. That your question, Willie, made me think about Tim and, and many of his colleagues. They wrote the Pioneers book about service learning. Um, and Tim has shared, and it's really astounding, about 70% of the people who co-authored that book lost their jobs at one point or another because they were pushing the edges of the institution. And I think one thing that's really kind of shocked me is the way in which not only do institutions, uh, you know, do all that you mentioned, but they also hide that important story of ongoing radicalism. Um, There's so many people that are constantly doing that, and we need to keep at it. and, And... Share stories with one another and do community organizing. Work on ourselves uh, continuously. Um, I'm so thankful for everyone um, to have been here. I feel like Marisol was was ready to go. No, you got the <laughs> no, <wrong> no. <laughs> okay. I thought I saw you saw you beginning. Do you-,
4: you can go Nicole. Nicole.
2: The hardest thing to open is a closed mind. Mm -hmm. And in this space, we need to keep pushing so we can open all the minds around us, not just our students, but faculty, staff, administrators,
3: and our community partners. So something that came to me when thinking about this work, and I I thought about it yesterday, is is a notion of compassionate critique. And I think what I'd like to offer is that we need to be critical. We need to offer critique to our institutions, um, to our students, maybe even to our partners, but to do that in a context of compassion. Because I think this work is a relational practice, and it, it, it maybe requires both kind of critique, but also compassion.
5: Eric prompted us on this question earlier, so I woke up this morning with it. I would say for me, the the single thing that gives me hope is riding a bicycle Uh, because in that very personal practice it it connects my body and my mind to uh, the unpredictability, the beauty of the natural world in a slow, non-polluting and oftentimes convivial manner. And it takes large cities like Los Angeles and puts it into a manageable size uh, and uh, helps me to acknowledge my own limitations and vulnerabilities in a world that I cannot control. I can only control myself.
4: Um, So I think, uh, when I think about what gives me hope like in this moment, I would say uh, watching the Parkland students and um, their ability to come together and also demand intersectionality in this uh, movement around gun control, but also the way that within a week's time, um, they came together but also the way they also put the way they pushed back on the folks who said it's not time yet it's we're not ready yet uh, much like MLK and others so um, I'd say the youth but in particular the parkland students insistence on now now's the time thank you,
1: thank you all um, I believe thank you Uh, Ray- Rachel Thomas Morgan is just going to uh, offer some closing remarks.
9: <laughs> Eric, I'm not sure that you were able to offer your last sentence. Would you like a oh, last yeah, sentence on- to say? Oh.
1: Uh, The hope is with the critical confrontation that is this community and the ways in which we start to imagine new possibilities, uh, including finding new ways potentially to situate where we do dialogues like this and to be creative about spaces so that we can do the work within ourselves personally but as a community um, to continue moving forward.
9: Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric, for facilitating this plenary. And, um, and all of you, Janice, Marisol, Richard, and Nicole for being here and, and really um, challenging us, pushing us uh, in the boundaries of our, of our work and to continue to do our work better. So thank you again. One more round of thanks for the plenary. To just one point that I think was raised uh, here today, I, I, if for those of you who don't know, I do want to acknowledge um, some institutions in this room that made a real commitment to bring partners um, to this gathering, and um, and we that was a commitment of human human and financial resources, um, and and, and- and that's important, I think, to acknowledge. And so I, I do want to make public that um, Haverford, Northwestern, University of Notre Dame, Georgetown, Ohio, and St. Thomas University, um, along with Global SL, made it possible to expand this community of practice and to bring more partners, more of our partners to from the Global South here to this summit and to this community. So uh, grateful to those institutions for the commitment to uh, help us walk the walk. So thank you for that. Um, it's absurd to, to know how to close this, and but you know, I just want to lift up some intersections, certainly, that have um, been a part of these past three days. Um, we've heard intersections and been a part of intersections of practice and research, and inst- institutions of higher education and community-based organizations, the religious and the secular, the head and the heart, intersections of listening and dialogue, national and international, local and global learning and engagement and dignity and justice. And I think we, as um, we leave here with those intersections and knowing that we are a critical part of bridge builders, of being bridge builders um, and being at the Oh boy, being being at these intersections. um, I, on behalf of the sponsoring institutions that are listed on the back page of your program, I'm not going to list, thank you for being here, but also encourage um, all of us to continue to be a part of this movement building and to be active members, and citizens in this community of practice, we will. Um, uh, Nora and Eric, I think, will reach out to us um, in multiple ways, sharing resource, continue to share resources of global SL, um, and to hear more of your feedback. But I encourage you to um, go to the website that Eric had mentioned before, it's a, a Campus Compact Global SL, and to stay in touch, um, to be in communication, um, to share your resources that you've been doing on your campuses and at your organizations with all of us. We look forward to the next gathering, whenever that may be, but certainly to be in communication virtually in that space. Thank you all for taking the time for being here, and thank you for the ongoing conversation to be had.
0: welcome back from the panel Eric that was great what were your thoughts coming
1: off of that I one appreciation for colleagues who clearly make this work their vocation their life's work and dive into the complexity rather than running from it Um, I think the panel highlighted for me the way in which when this work is done well it's theoretically and historically situated and conscious um, it's conscious of injustices and power, and does power analysis. Um, so there's a lot of simultaneous, simultaneous and transdisciplinary action going on. Even, um, well, just, just from a theoretical side. And as several of the panelists pointed out, that transdisciplinary inquiry is something that should should demonstrate clear contributions from people situated in epistemologies and ontologies that aren't frequently represented in the the classroom.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: There were so many great questions that I started to jot down as I was listening to the panel. Uh, But then those questions would be addressed and then a few of the audience members asked similar questions. And so uh, what I appreciate about the panel is, It it did its work of telling the story of where we are um, in in this field. So I have a few questions I've jotted down that are related to what I heard from the panel, but in some ways unrelated, but looking at a broader context of what I've seen on social media or or I've heard. um, One thing that I have seen recently on social media is this pushback of students from the United States having these global experiences, taking photos in orphanages, and, and you hear the idea of the white savior complex and a student posting a picture with a brown child in an orphanage. Um, and people are starting to push back on that. Um, and some of that I do think could is coming from a right place of challenging those type of experiences, but sometimes students maybe aren't telling the right story. What work is being done to help students are having more of these intentional global experiences where they should be working with community? How are we helping them in the field better tell their stories when they're posting these pictures? Because the reality is we live in a social media world. So even if we try to tell the students, don't post photos, don't do this, it's going to happen at some point. So what are we doing to help prepare students to better tell the story of the experiences that they're having that maybe can help inspire other people when they think about, oh, this is what global work can look like when it's looked at through a critical lens.
1: Great. Uh, That's a great question. And I just want to acknowledge that sometimes the pushback is entirely appropriate. Yes, right. You you sort of gave a shout out in the intro to the critiques I have on tourism. Um, Often those are coming from a very informed place in the context of global development, but when we, if, if there's good programming which is community driven and done in partnership, how do students tell that story? We work on our campus. Actually, presented a session out here. We work on our campus to dive into this question um, by having an ethical photography contest. Um, now, actually, there are some things about the contents that the students, the contest language, the students didn't, love, didn't uh, enjoy. So we've shifted a little bit. It's ethical photography requirement. But it involves really supporting students in preparation on what ethical photography can look like. And we do that in conversation with community partners. Uh, so, for example, we work with an organization called Voice of Witness. It is an NGO that is dedicated to and founded to amplify voices that have been most marginalized and rights affected. Mm-hmm. So their their life's work is getting into this complexity. They've given us some uh, presentation around how they think about that. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, an indigenous language activist in Oaxaca, Mexico. Mm-hmm. He, for his own purposes, because he wants to preserve and protect Zapotec, has been tweeting uh, pictures and then doing Zapotec Spanish and English for years. Mm-hmm. Um, he's interested in this amplification, so we hear from those folks and then think together about how can we make photography a co-creation, mm-hmm. an inquiry project. Um, the students basically have this requirement to, to take four photos with these really impossibly broad themes of like global citizenship, social justice, peace, mm-hmm. and ethical action. And, and and then they're off, they have to put it on the Instagram and caption it mm-hmm. because one of the things about, not only this that they're gonna do it no matter what, so you should prep them, but also most students struggle to tell their story about what they've experienced when they return home. So we're trying mm-hmm. to give them some tools that are about the family and friend network voice, but also the civic voice as they return nice are there opportunities
0: there for interdisciplinary interaction so connecting some of the liberal arts disciplines to help students think about creatively writing their story but done so in an authentic and intentional way right
1: that's a great question it does tag back in um so instagram is a limited platform it's actually possible to do you know three quarters of a page the word Mm limit forget the exact actual character count but um so that's somewhat limited. However, during the summertime our students are eight weeks in their locations and they don't really have credits and class requirements pointing into the fall. But in the fall those classes those photographs come into the classroom. And we have, so students can take one of three different reentry courses at Haverford and actually several other options, but the main courses are international human rights, domestic human rights, and global health, and depending on their experience during the summer, they'll enter one of those three. But in addition to diving into a full credit reentry where they're looking at the individual experience as it relates to a broader empirical and theoretical space and doing a reflective processing altogether, we try to create a couple of events where they're all together, looking looking across their experiences, because you know, Global Citizenship, I actually find really interesting and important language, because it is about potentiality. It's incredibly pluralistic, incredibly diverse, and sometimes it's hard to see the totality. We send about 60 students uh, eight-week internships each summer, mm. when they're all together in space, it's not particularly powerful about trying to look at representation uh, in a period. yeah. yeah.
0: I want to shift gears slightly, uh, but still related to the same topic, of course. Um, The panel talked much about the decolonization of higher education, also class structure changing in higher education, pathways to higher ed. And while it's not new to have students of color on campus, uh, in the last decade we have seen students of color push back. Uh, We've seen students who come from different class backgrounds begin to push back we also know that on most higher education campuses, the non-traditional student now makes up almost 52% of the population. So as we're seeing these students change, the student population change on our campuses, as we're creating these global experiences uh, with communities abroad, how has that changed the types of reflections we're doing with students?
1: Well I think that's the right question to be asking right now for anybody doing programming in the space. And a lot of folks are making some significant uh, inroads. Nikki Messmore and Jessica Davis have really worked together in student affairs to bring together kind of critical race theory and uh, contributions in that space to thinking about, Ways in which preparation matches to the individual student, which is really kind of the fundamental question we turn to repeatedly. I think Marisol gave an awesome example uh, in her experience and context. But those resources are growing, um, and I think it's yeah, incumbent upon us to continue to follow uh, with them and do that inquiry. It also reminds me of something we didn't get to talk about in the panel. For me, part of the panel just kept feeding the suspicion I have that the language of university and community, campus and community is overly reductive and actually more problematic than it is helpful. Uh-huh. Uh, it seems to me that people have values about making shared, creative, collaborative change, mm-hmm. and we have different points of leverage. And different kinds of privileges. Mm-hmm. But all of us are intersectional, more actors. And sometimes, even these days, on quite my campus, is certainly called an elite campus. But it has a power structure and it's a community and it should be mm-hmm. as such. And, um, and I think that's relevant in ways that I don't fully, completely understand yet, but as we are thinking about new majority students and the economic situation of so many higher ed institutions,
0: uh-huh. uh-huh. that
1: we really all part of systems that need some creative collaboration.
0: Uh-huh. And as we're beginning to expand global programs on campuses and students who come from a privileged background versus students who are newer to the world of, of higher education and maybe first gen and are getting these global experiences, Myra saw, talked about uh, past experience she had where there were opportunities to provide scholarships for um, students of color and low income students to um, study abroad. And then I heard Nicole bring up the question, if you can't look into your own backyard and see issues that are happening in our communities why would I send any of you abroad and so connected to that last question how do we help students through reflection through education um, unpack and address local problems such as opioid addiction and crisis and what steps should be taken to make um, the global programs also have a um, Reflective back component to the local community. As I heard Marisol mention the word transnational experiences or international, um, wh- what steps need to be done to make sure that those connections are being made to prepare students to have these global experiences? And is anyone doing that well?
1: I think. One thing that comes up for me, and I want to give credit to Rebecca Tison at the University of Ottawa, who's done some thinking in this space as well. One thing she points out is for responsible programs um, in global engagement, global communities, um, one of the markers that one tends to see is some education about decoloniality or working through these tough questions as soon as students are accepted into the program. She's realized that's not the right moment. Mm. Students should have opportunity, encouragement, find ways to get students into pathways early in their uh, trajectories on campus, where they're learning about local and and international forms of global engagement. Mm. And they start to see some options, right? So orienting early so that they can choose with some degree of exposure to the critical reasons why they might want to reimagine their narratives about um, who's deserving, who should get attention, or why someone should travel, whether a person will make a, a difference, um, air quotes there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think we're seeing, I hope that's happening more places, I mean I think, I know we're seeing more civic pathways Mm -hmm. at institutions. Um, One thing that I would love to see is some integration of internationalization and civic pathways because those two different movements on campuses Mm -hmm. seem to bring together this kind of discourse. We have tried with some of our own programming to create an entry level course that looks at migrant rights in Philadelphia um, before exposing students to possibilities about working further with a partner organization we live with in Mexico City. Mm,
0: nice. The last question I have for you because I want to be respectful of your time and uh, the panel was so full of great advice and content that I I want to in some ways shorten our, our interview time together for that and for our listeners who often have shorter commute times. As I was listening to the panel, I was reflecting back on a presentation I heard two years ago at our slice from the University of San Francisco on as we're developing global experiences for students and we're trying to be intentional about the lens we're wearing uh, or looking through to develop experiences to make sure that uh, we're creating opportunities for students to be their authentic selves we often overlook the LGBTQ or non-binary community. Um, I've heard from queer students myself and being a person who identifies as gay and traveling abroad, I've heard from students that um, two things. One, so much of the global work has been done through a faith-based lens, which hasn't always been welcoming to LGBTQ people. The other is, uh in many societies still internationally it is a crime for people to be open about who they are what work is being done there at all to make sure that if we are being intentional about these experiences we are creating ones where students who are in the lgbtq community feel like they can be their authentic selves when they're doing work uh globally
1: That's that's an important issue and question, and and I want to try to come back around to So thank you, that's an incredibly important question. It reminds me of one thing about the ethical photography I shared earlier. One of the caveats we have in that requirement with our students is if there's any reason involving personal health and safety, that they shouldn't be sharing their social media in connection with what they're doing. Um, we're very respectful of that. Um, we also, in our context, we draw on resources from other institutions to do this. So Columbia University had an excellent resource on LGBTQ uh, travel preparation. Those are um, when one looks. And NAFSA actually is an increasingly kind of robust set of guidelines in that space. We also worked with our um, In our context, with our Women's Center, uh, which did a lot of preparation for students uh, who may have non-binary identities or LGBTQ, uh, really the full uh, spectrum of possible identities, working through with students where they are in terms of what they need to express as individuals, where they're going, and what that context uh, will mean in relation to that and working to understand, you know, well before they leave, um, what for themselves are non-negotiables and what are things that they might want to um, choose to in, in their context, um, not share. Uh, so it's really something we hope to drive into, it's individually sensitive. I wanted to share uh, that over the years of this work, I learned of a community and I've heard uh, from others, this has happened elsewhere, and actually, there's, there's data on this kind of thing happening in global So the, the big data on this is one unexpected outcome of repeated international volunteer visits is norm diffusion in terms of, and you know, people can talk about whether well, these are good things or bad things, but in this context, I think this is a good thing, because I'm talking about norm diffusion around the acceptance and inclusion for people who identify as LGBTQ. As so we work with a community I'm going to keep this all um, somewhat confidential for, for everybody sure, yeah but uh, a rural community um, in, in the global south that historically had not been accepting, in fact, had been physically threatened mm-hmm. to, uh, to LGBTQ people through decades of partnership um, and some conversations early on that just raised awareness that students who are identified who are comfortable coming, Mm -hmm. and starting to explore and have conversations. That community is now proudly out as an accepting community. Um, And that kind of thing, a multi-directional learning of various kinds, um, not always predicted or planned for, Mm -hmm. um, is the kind of dynamism that occurs when people get together to try to understand one another and make sense of, of doing work together.
0: Mm-hmm. That speaks so much to the long-term partnership too, and not the idea of going in and, and out of a community, but rather staying within the community, even if it's the faculty member that has the connection, but the students going in uh, connected to that long-term partnership. There's growth that occurs over time from both ends, and I think that's a really wonderful example of that. So. Well, I have one last question that is kind of a fun question. (laughs) So we typically, our listeners know that we do a pop culture corner on the podcast, but recently we interviewed a sixth grader from Chicago, Theo, and he talked about what life was like as being a sixth grader. And one thing he mentioned was my friends and I talk about, well, if we could be any kind of vegetable in the world, what would we be? And I thought, oh my gosh, that's perfect. So when we do the commentary on that particular podcast, I want Emily and Andrew to say what vegetable. Well, they weren't having any part of that. We didn't end up doing that. So I've saved that question actually for you. So if you had to put your career and work behind you and live the rest of your life as either a root vegetable or some type of plant, what would that be for you and why?
1: So I want to thank you for giving me a warning about that. I did last night on Twitter. (laughs)
2: Um...
1: And I'll just admit that I immediately farmed it out. I was sitting with some community organization partners and, and uh, folks I work with regularly. So, full credit to uh, Alexander from Punta de Salud, who said she would be a sweet potato because it's nourishing, it can fill you, it's sweet, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, I felt there couldn't possibly be a better answer than that. Yeah. We, we tossed it around a little bit, tried to find one,
0: but. That's the, uh, that's the one that stuck for me. That's a good one. So no rutabaga or anything like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sweet potato. <laughs> nice. I like having people think about that question because it takes time to reflect on, well, what are the good parts of vegetables and plants? And oftentimes it's the thriving, the nutrients. I've thought about it for myself too in preparation for that last podcast. Your I thought I would be a dandelion. I know that's like maybe a plant or some people think a weed or a flower but the thing about dandelions they have lots of healing qualities they have much to offer but oftentimes they're overlooked or they're seen as something that isn't beautiful or something that shouldn't exist within the context of our daily lives so people try so hard to like put them out or you know kill them or exterminate them from their yards but they're so resilient they just like they turn to their uh, little seeds and they Blow away and they just plant themselves in someone else's yard. And so there's something really beautiful, I think, about. The dandelion too that's sometimes overlooked by other people. So anyway, <laughs> thanks for giving me the chance to share that since I didn't get the opportunity to on, on Thea. So well, Eric Hartman, thank you so much for your work that you contribute to the field, for helping put this conference together, for uh, for facilitating the closing plenary that we got our listeners got to listen to today. So I appreciate having you here and, and having you on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for the podcast. I'm a huge fan
0: of Insane. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I do uh, go to our hashtag. So we want to tell our listeners if you want to follow the conversations, visit hashtag CompactNationPod, P-O-D, on Twitter, and you can see the latest episodes uploaded there. You can see conversations that folks are having. That's where I can spy and see who's listening, and uh, I see some of your comments that you put on there sometimes. So thank you for being a loyal listener of the show, and maybe our only listener. I don't know. <laughs> I hope not, but it, it could be possible. So, we would love to have more listeners. If you're hearing this, please share it with colleagues, share it on your social media channels, and like I said before, join our conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. This concludes season two of the Compact Nation podcast. And thank you for being a loyal fan of the show. We'll be back in September for season three. Until then, enjoy the rest of your summer and send your episode ideas to us on social media using hashtag CompactNationPod. That's P-O-D. See you in September. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe, all rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag pod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and
5: rate us.